Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 552 with Chef Rob Evans. I always took risks the whole time, even during that dark time. How we format the menu, how we advertise the food itself. I think it's important to take risks in order to get to where you want to be. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Cash flow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month. Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Rob Evans, my man. Chef Rob, are you feeling unstoppable today? Uh, yeah, I'm feeling <laughs> unstoppable. I hesitate because uh, unstoppable is what gets me into trouble. Right. Uh, so typically I'd roll right into the introduction, but we got to paint a picture. What do you got here? I mean, you're spoiling me right now. So grateful to be here. Um, well, we're eating our namesake duck fat fries right now. We're at our new location, our secondary location, the Fritz Shack at, on Washington Ave at Oxbow Blending and Bottling which we opened up the beer garden with these guys this spring. And um, with that, we're drinking Oxbow's Native Wild, their first cool ship beer. So um, we are looking at uh, a main version of Belgian classics right here, which we're both pretty proud of. Oh, man. Um, and if I am chewing and you can hear it throughout this interview, <laughs> I apologize in advance. Uh, we also have something else going over here, too. Um, a warm yes, beverage. we uh, well, I should clarify first here at the Oxbow uh, Beer Garden, we have a fry window and we're going to stay open all through the window, all through the uh, winter. And this is a nod back to our trips to Amsterdam, which started the duck fat concept. We always thought the fry window was a cool idea. So we're kind of revisiting an old idea and um, Winter's coming, so we're like, what can we do from this window that will be cozy? So this is a duck brodo served what? in like a coffee sippy cup, and we just have visions of blizzards in February and people just walking around with these in their hands. Exactly what is a duck brodo? 
Well, I mean, I laugh at the name Brodo because it's really just broth. Okay. I mean, someone like um, it's been marketed bone broth, Brodo, all legitimate descriptions, but they're so good marketing ploys that just took good. broth into this whole new direction. So we're hopping on the trend. Typically, we don't we don't dive into food on the podcast. We're more of a business podcast, personal growth podcast. But with this type of treatment, I had to go into it. Yes. So good. it would eat up a lot of time if we <laughs> yeah. talked about food. Thank you so much for doing this. I yeah, appreciate of course. you. So before being one of the most influential chefs in Portland, Maine, Chef Rob Evans was on a path to the family trade of being an electrician. The calling of the kitchen was just too loud. He would go on to work at Goose Cove Lodge, the inn at Little Washington, the French Laundry, and he would return to Portland restaurant scene in 2002 uh, with his wife, Nancy Pugh, to uh, open Hugo. Sorry, not to take to take over Hugo's correction. In 2009, Rob won the James Beard Award for Best Chef Northeast. And in 2012, Rob and Nancy left Hugo's to focus on Duck Fat, which they previously opened in 2005. Evan's latest project is Duck Fat Freight Shack, which opened just recently in 2018. I can't wait to dive into your story to find out (laughs) how we got to where we are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. And I didn't give you a warning about this in the pre-interview chat. You got one locked and loaded? Um, well, let's let's do, mantra. You got a success quarter mantra? Um, it's pretty common. It's a golden rule. The golden rule. The golden rule do goes through others. management, <laughs> goes through food, goes through service. How would you like to be treated? How would you like to be at work? Seems to have served us well. It seems to have served you well. well. And the cool thing about sitting here with you today is that I've gotten the chance to get close with. Uh, Arlen Smith, who was just on the show, and we got to talk about you in before and after the interview too. And it's cool for me to learn about these incredible people, uh, to to have conversations about these incredible incredible people, and then sit across from them and the, to get their story. So this is going to be really interesting. And don't be afraid to move that mic like right in front sure. of your face too. Um, all right, so take me to where the story starts from you. Like you're you're an electrician, you're doing the family trade thing. Uh, where were you working? How'd you get sucked out of that and into the kitchen? Well, uh, being electricians, a push. I went okay. to uh, vocational school gotcha. for lack of not knowing what else to do, and my cousin was an electrician and seemed like a good idea. Got out of uh, school and did that for maybe a year, and I didn't like it in school, and I didn't like it uh, after school. I just don't have the brain for that type <laughs> of uh, work. And then um, on a whim. I was walking by a restaurant. I was like washing dishes as a kid. At this time, I'm 19. And the chef goes, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, not much. I was doing electrician, electrical work. And he says, you want to learn how to cook? And it was as simple as that. I was like, sure. <laughs> so how long were you working here before? Uh, about three years. Three years? Yeah. So how how did you get to know all or the, the just – the intuition to go to incredible places. I'm not too familiar with Goose Cove Lodge, but I definitely have heard of the little in, sorry, the, the in that little Washington, mm-hmm. obviously everyone's heard of the French yeah. laundry. What story or, or how'd you get into, into this direction? What's, what's well, the I, I should back up a little here? bit. Cause, uh, I went to the, the inner little Washington, my first kind of high end experience in my young thirties. I'm 19 cooking, not thinking about any of that stuff. This is when cooking was not cool, not hip, not sexy. Forever, my mom's like, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> yeah, right? 
And um, I literally was in the kitchen, one, because I could eat all day. That was so novel for me. <laughs> and then... Um, Speaking of which, I'm going to move the microwave and start chewing on some of these And fries. then um, the counterculture aspect of it, I really took to. I loved working nights and the weekends and that whole pirate aspect you get by working with people in the kitchen. And, you know, through my 20s, I didn't, I didn't even, I wasn't even sure where it was going. Again, back then, a chef. What did that mean? A chef of a hotel, a restaurant? I don't know. I never really uh, gave it much uh, thought. It. And then it became a means of travel. I traveled a lot. It gave me work where I was traveling. So you were 19 when you first got into kitchens and yeah. you weren't, it wasn't until you were 31 until you got into some of the higher, more yes. recognized kitchens. Until I started even thinking of it as a career. And what happened was uh, I applied at Goose Cove Lodge for a uh, chef position way out of my league. I just loved the location. At the yeah. time, I was uh, living in Hawaii, working on and off on cruise ships. And this opportunity came up, and I just loved your aisle today. And, uh, of course, I didn't get the job. And then the guy they hired had health complications, ended up calling me. <laughs> and I went there, and she had a catering company. She brought the chef up, and he worked for me, worked with me for like uh, three weeks. And I'm off being a chef at this restaurant probably making horrible mistakes i'm not even aware of today but that was when it took when i was looking at uh menus and structuring menus and creating food is was like an aha moment for me and i saw the endless amounts of possibilities and learning and creation and that goes on with being a chef and this wasn't until like you were 31 yeah at the Correct. Cove Cova lodge so you said something that really resonated with me and like you were just using uh, the industry to travel, to explore. And I think that is such a smart thing to do at a young age because if it, it forces you to get experiences, it forces you to get clarity on what matters to you, right? When you live like that, when you're traveling, right. you're experiencing different cultures, different opinions. Did you grow a lot during this time? Did you get any type of clarity as to like what mattered to you? Um, for, for sure. I also saw how, um, food connects you to cultures like um you travel and you follow the regional food it brings you right to the heart of yeah. wherever you're traveling i mean bourdain proved that yeah. with all his yeah. traveling you know food's a great uh communicator Absolutely. you know able to uh so from the age you were three years at the first job so 19 to 22 and then 31 you had about nine years of just getting around how many different places would you say uh ballpark did you work in in that, in that nine years traveling around um it was varied. Like um, I did, uh, I spent a lot of my twenties trying to make it in Hawaii, and that's what landed me on cruise ships because I could save money and we got to see all the islands every week. And and then um, from there, throughout California, Florida, um, um, it was a quick time when I look back. And how long were you staying at each one of these jobs? Did you have like a rule of thumb? Were you giving them so much time? Were you kind of jumping around? Yeah, I feel, and I tell all my guys, at least a year, mm. I expect from people. You see all the seasons. You get a full taste of the restaurant. And I think with with our industry, you need to jump around to get the most out of it. So a year, you get, I think, at least baseline of what a restaurant has to offer. And um, and you show commitment. 
that's the big to one. To the uh, yeah. owner as well. Not only that, but you're developing a reputation, right? Yeah. And everybody knows everybody in this industry, especially once you start climbing the ladder and you're working at the more well-known restaurants. Like the network is there. And yeah. if you start hopping around, burning bridges, you're going to do right. yourself a huge disjustice. So be intentional about where you're working, Correct. right? And, yes. and give them at least a year. They're, they're investing in you. Yeah. They, you don't know how they do things early on. Like you gotta, They're going to put that time and energy to bring you to their standard. Uh, and you've got to repay them back with your time, right? right. Um, so that's something that comes up often on the show. Uh, any other key, huge lessons, takeaways during this time of just traveling the world, the ways that you transformed as uh, a man and a professional? Um, sure. That's a great question. I think um, <clears throat> restaurant life, kitchen life is uh, life school. Like how to um, work as a team, how to uh, serve, serve others, how to eat well. Um, I, I, I'll get a lot of young cooks who I can tell this isn't going to be a life decision for them. But I'm like, you will carry this skill. How do you know? Through your whole life. How do you know when it's not going to be the right fit for them? If, if they're passionate about talking about what their other passions are, uh. I can tell. If they come in and they're not sure, I'm like, oh, I might <laughs> hook them. Okay. Anything's possible. But um, whether you're front of the house or back of the house, there's a lot of life lessons. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when did you know it was time to take the chance? Thank you. He's filling my glass right now. I'm a lucky man. Uh, when did you know it was time to take the chance and to go for a more elite position at a place like Goose Cove Lodge? Where was this, by the way? Um, this was in Deer Isle, Maine. And again, in my life, I didn't think it was a chance. I just wanted to work on, at this coastal lodge. So I tried for a chef job, and then it fell on my lap, and I returned there for uh, four summers after that. And then uh, in between, I would go to Hawaii and fill in time in Hawaii. So I did seasonal okay. uh, Maine and Hawaii for quite a few That's years. That's a lesson right there. Yeah. What's the value in that? Um, the value, it was funny because they're two extremes, right? And uh, I was had a full-on love affair with Hawaii in my 20s. And um, Hawaii is very uh, transient. And it's hard to make those connections. If you guys could hear that crunching, by the way, I <laughs> it's not me, by the way. They're good stuff. It's totally <laughs> me. I try to turn down my mic, but you might have still got it. It's not yeah. good. You'll know when keep, I'm eating. It'll be keep, very loud. Keep going. <laughs> um, so yeah, Hawaii is very transient. And, uh, and I was always struggling out there financially. So when coming to Maine and Deer Isle, I just, the people were real. Plus I'm a native New Englander and it's something in my thirties said, come back home. So, um, the lessons I learned there was uh, how much the people people matter. Yeah, and um, yeah, and just family too. My family's here. Wait, dive in. You can't just uh, say how much people matter. Matter. How, where did this lesson come from? Really dive into. How well, you- <laughs> I don't know about other chefs, but a lot of the lure of the kitchen for me. I'm an introvert, and I just want to be in back of the house and mm-hmm. heads down and cooking with a core bunch of guys and. Um, and then you realize pretty soon in this business, it's not the food business, it's the HR business. And it's about people. So it like helped me um, develop social skills, how to be more or less of an introvert. And um, coming back to Maine and being in chef's shoes taught me that. Plus the people in Maine are just real. There's just real people here. Where are you from originally? Uh, Massachusetts. Okay parents from newfoundland so i appreciate the northern 
northeast work <laughs> ethic yeah. that keeps us on our toes. I hear that. Because winter is coming all the time. Okay. And I feel that, that, that um, time that goes back to the Puritans has helped develop a, a certain inertia here. And I think that is obvious when you leave New England. Yeah. Which is good in one ways. At the same time, we have a hard time relaxing up here. Yep. You go to Hawaii and it's the opposite, you know, so you're learning to chill out more and have more fun. So those two good balance, two things are yeah. good for me. Yeah. So let's bring it uh, to taking on the role of executive chef for the first time, right? Was this the first executive chef role for you? Um, yes. Okay. What was that like diving into that leadership role? <laughs> well, it's funny you say executive chef because the first show was just chef and then they hired a real chef the next season and okay. I was his sous chef which I learned a lot Doug Alverson okay. was a chef and then the last two years I was chef and I so wanted the executive chef title okay. I really didn't know what the hell I was talking about back then <laughs> but I knew it looked good on a resume yeah. so they gave me the title of uh, executive chef so what were the key things you learned from him, from him? Uh, what was his name chef Doug, uh, Doug Alverson chef Doug Alverson what were the key things you learned from him not necessarily about food but about how to run a kitchen. Yeah, everyone loved Doug, and he was a natural leader, and I saw just uh, being good to people, being yourself, people will, will follow, mm-hmm. will support you. So that what was kind a of, thing with him. Who was he? What was the self that he was? Um, he was very relaxed. I also noticed uh, early on his efficiency in movements. And just how he moved around the kitchen with intentionally, the least, intentionally yeah. with the least amount of effort. Yeah. Cool. Um, anything else worth diving into at your time here at Goose Cove? That's a lesson, a nugget well, to extract. Well, that's when I started doing my first tasting menus. And it was a special occasion. They would, we do them like we do for a year. And um, I did one and a customer asked for me to come out, which was really new for me. Not comfortable with that. Still aren't today. But um, I came out and she loved the meal and we really connected. And um, she's like, um, I told her I was leaving Goose Cove Lodge. She's like, where are you going? And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. And she says, well, I have, uh, I know Patrick O'Connell from the Inland of Washington. And I know, um, it's not Hawaii, but no, you know, no. it's a little it's, bit warmer. Yeah, it's a little there. bit warmer. <laughs> also, she knew Todd uh, English. Okay. So immediately I was like, oh, this could be a bridge um, to somewhere. And uh, Sharon Lenby was her name. And um, I chose Elu Washington, and they got back to me, and I wrote them a letter, and I got a tryout, and nice. that was my bridge into that dining was through that. I, th- I can't help but bring this up and it comes up another thing that comes up often in the show and that is you never know who you're cooking for so treat like every meal like it's your like a job interview right because you never know where the next opportunity is going to come you're always on a job interview in this this industry you're always being watched and you've got to treat every dish every experience every connection every relationship like that yeah and the food every knife cut Every seasoning yep. ends up in someone's mouth. Mm, man, and who's, yes, and who is it? You don't know, but everyone matters, you know, whether they're 
a food critic, a celebrity, or someone dining there for the first time. Do me a favor and grab that mic and put it like right where it is on my face. I feel like we can. Oh, is that my fade note? Yeah, yeah. Is that good? You comfortable? Yes. Sweet. Don't be afraid to grab that mic and move it around. Okay. So, um, take us. What was it like? Was it was the experience elevated at Little Washington, or was it about equal? What was that like? Um, It was highly elevated. Okay. Yeah, they just got their third Michelin star this year. What was it like moving into that? more of an extreme environment um i was concerned i might not have uh what it took to um to take it there um and during a two-day tryout i saw i had exactly what it took to be part of that kitchen how'd you know you had exactly what it took what was the indicator um you know just like how we all learn just by watching and mimicking and looking around and going, you know, I can totally be doing what that guy's doing. I can totally do what that guy does. And, and uh, they end up giving me a job. Nice. So what were the big lessons working at such an elevated kitchen? That you don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, skydiving at the time. I had to sell all my gear just to make it down there. And uh, I did whatever I could to uh, uh, survive. I ended up doing uh, private dinners for uh, Sharon, who had a home down there, and she, she would take people out weekly to these high-end business dinners, and she ended up hiring me, and I would do them in her home. Was Sharon the woman that you were cooking yes. for? Okay. Yes. Cool. So that was a help. And um, But outside of the f- financial part, just the whole process is important. Every bit of it, from the floor you're standing on to the walls around you to what's happening with the food. It was... Enlightening. What were some of the things that they showed you at Little Washington that you just would have never realized, never considered things that were just like taking it to that next level? Like, what is the next level? Well, they they're a southern restaurant. Yeah. So they were. Um, there's a re- southern food revival. If there ever they say there's one going on now, hell, it's going on everywhere yeah. in the country. But if there was ever ever a southern revival, those guys were on the cutting edge of it. You know, doing uh, seared foie gras with black eyed peas. And so, how they took the simplest, most humble of ingredients and elevated them into a $250 meal was just really um, uh, inspiring to see. And I, I absolutely know the significance of a well cooked meal, the thought that goes into the creativity of everything. What about the the way that kitchen was organized and ran and the respect of remind me of the chef's name again. I'm Patrick up. O'Connell. Yes. Patrick O'Connell. How did he run the, the, were there any new lessons from him as a leader, as a chef uh, or as a business owner that you learned in that time? Well, um, it was, a an inn. So there's all the inn qualities. It wasn't just a restaurant. And that's, I think where he really shined is, uh, he knew hospitality. He's also one of the few restaurants of that caliber that didn't require a dress code. He felt it was up to the customer to feel comfortable, which was very innovative mm. at the time. And at the same time, you go outside and there'd be Jaguars and Lamborghinis in the middle of Rappahannock County, Virginia. <laughs> Most of the customers are from D.C. and politicians and whatnot. But um, he had an eye um, for detail so deeper than I had ever dreamed of and watching him um command a kitchen was uh good to see and it was also interesting that you know he we they just finished their five million dollar kitchen build out (laughs) 
Just this gorgeous 15-foot ceilings and hand-painted Italian tiles. I was able to be there during this brand-new kitchen for them. But he wasn't really there cooking. And I, at first, it took, took me by surprise, you know, thinking, oh, the chef's always there. And he was there. He'd be there an hour before service, taste through all the food and expediting. But mostly, he was um, communicating with customers and greeting. We had a kitchen table. Um, he was quality control. So uh, at that young age, um, I didn't quite understand that level of a uh, chef. And then, of course, as I yeah. get older and older and older, you can only be so many people with so many hats. You know? Yeah, and one of the things that's come out in your story up to this point is that you you mentioned earlier that you struggle with the being in the front of the house and approaching the guest. It sounds like this is more natural for him. He was more of that person that liked to be the face. He liked to be engaging. Did you learn anything from him? Um, did that help? kind of break the mold for you a little bit that seeing him doing this and putting such a focus on the hospitality, the face to face, did you extract anything from that? Not so much to okay. be honest. No, I appreciate it. It was, uh, it's all about the food still at that point. Okay. okay. Yeah. It was I all about what was yeah. happening with the food and where we were sourcing it and what was coming in. And, and, uh, that jump up to that level at the little Washington was good for me too, because again, it was the simplest of ingredients elevated. So it were all ingredients I understood. Of course, we'd get our random one pound white truffle in during New Year's and foie gras was everywhere and they used black truffles like it was free all <laughs> over the place. But mostly the ingredients were fairly um, simple. Beautiful. So. One other thing you mentioned, I think that is definitely worth trying to extract some more detail out of. Uh, it was the attention to detail. Uh, what things did he do to make sure that attention to detail wasn't overlooked even when he was out of the kitchen? Like, did he create certain standards? Like, was it just a certain culture that was like, what was it that made that he did to make sure everybody operated at that level of detail? His upper management. Okay. Getting, yeah. He had, uh, he had, um, a team of guys fairly young too, with hindsight. I'm impressed how young they were running, uh, that kitchen. And uh, he, watching him work through them, sometimes embarrassing. He could be scolding someone right in front of them while talking to the sous chef about him. Jeez. Oh, like, not talking to who's messing up, but like, Kevin, really, are we hiring idiots here now? Is that what's going on? So, um, not so impressive uh, with that, but on a regular day-to-day -day basis, sure, how he... Um, how he worked through his uh, upper management there. I want to go into that more, how he worked through his upper management, dive into what you mean by that and what you gathered from that. Well, especially now where I am today, uh, my upper management is who I'm dealing with most of the time. Um, again, we talked about many hats. I can't connect with all 52 of my staff. I barely uh, can remember their names. Sometimes they come in and go out. <clears throat> so um, I would be in risk of micromanaging and um, underscoring our managers work there. So you work exclusively with your managers to create a culture and a style that rep best represents who we are. And um, that's how it works. Kind of like recreating yourself in your managers, bringing them to the same values, the yes. same beliefs, same standards. Like at uh, Hugo's, I was on the spot 24-7. If it was open, I was there. At Duck Fat, 
I was a, a manager apart from the kitchen. So I had to learn those skills there and how to work with managers and get them to do what we think. Is I right. want to dissect that when we get there for sure. sure. I'm going deeper, uh, but we can't just jump over the French laundry. So yes. <laughs> how many, how many years were you at the little inn at Washington before uh, making the trip? I was there a little more than a year, a little more than a year. I'm going to stand now. I was 35. Okay. I was old in that kitchen. The kitchen was all uh, mid twenties, young twenties kids coming over from Europe and whatnot. So I was young I mean, I was old at the Inn of Washington, even older at the French Laundry. So after, I'm saying this because I'm gearing up to start doing my own thing. I'm like, see what I can gather, see what information I can get, because I could feel it already. I want to be doing my own thing. And um, at the time, the French Laundry uh, book was just coming out. So I had heard whispers of them before, but they weren't the who they are today, at least uh, they weren't recognized as that when I was uh, at the Inn of Washington. So we're we talking like 90, late 90s? 99. 99, okay. Yep. And uh, I went to the sous chef there who became a good friend of mine later and still is, told him I wanted to go to the French Laundry, asked if Patrick O'Connell, the chef, would write me a letter of recommendation, and they agreed. Wow. And they got me a tryout there. And... Um, I packed up everything and just drove out there. I said, if I didn't get a job there, I'll just work in Napa. You said you're like 35 at this time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what was it about you, your work ethic, the way you presented yourself at the little inn at Washington uh, that you believe granted you this letter of recommendation? Um, I moved through a lot of stations there. Um. I was, I was learning to be a better communicator there, so I think um, I was a good member of the team there. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was always up front with them. What, is, what do you mean? What does that look like? Uh, Give me an example. No hidden agenda. Not like trying to get a holiday off or whatever, you know, just the, uh, the commitment. So when you say you're up front with them, are you talking about things that when you had – Opinions or uh, um, if there's controversy? Okay, ideas. Ideas. Okay. Um, accountability. If you're late, owning it, not being full of excuses. Yeah, respect. Um, I should, before we move on to Washington, I should point out my last position there, which was uh, saute. You cook for Patrick Ooh. and his partner every night. And he lets you do what he wants what you want and that was one of the biggest i saw right away the value in that so for six months i got to cook for him every night and get his honest uh, nice feedback. how did that mold who you were as a chef it was everything i mean i'm just thinking about it now i kind of forgot about that yeah. stage but um that was huge what was he doing for you what was the purpose of that oh he eats late at night he eats at midnight <laughs> aside from feeding himself was there an added benefit to you was he intentionally mentoring you molding you was um, like- i think yeah for sure that was there honestly i think he just needed to eat and someone had to cook <laughs> and that was always on that station if you worked that station you would uh cook for him so you'd have to slide in your ideas amongst all the other stuff that you're uh, doing and um his feedback was um priceless and i was also um receptive to it never um negative about 
And he was, he would come over and go, oh my God, that was awful. I never got one of those. But <laughs> he would be totally honest and go, that is terrible. He'd come over and go, oh, you know, this could have been cooked more or more salt here. Or wow, that was awesome. This should be balanced. I mean, come on, that is gold. Yeah. I want to yeah. ask you, what was the best thing you learned from him? Was that. What is that? Like uh, in, at Goose Cove, I was creating within my limitations of Deer Isle with uh, um, certain price restrictions there. Now I'm at the Little Washington. Money's not an object. Plus, they're an inn. No one even knew the food costs there. That was just get the best food you could to make it because <laughs> yeah. the rooms were just such a value. So uh, here I am able to cook whatever I want, create whatever I want with no financial limitations with a $5 million kitchen. That is invaluable. For a chef who's eaten all over the world oh, for the last 30 years of his life. So I mean, that's I, what I got from it was that experience right there was worth the whole job. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's transition to the French Laundry. You get the letter of recommendation. Uh, you were there for how long? About a year there? Not even a year. Not even a year? Yeah. And, uh, what was that transition like? Was it, was, well, the, was it another level of excellence or is it more of a lateral move? Um, another level of excellence. Yeah. And, and people there who uh, knew I was going, they're like, oh, did you work with for Nick, something different? Did you work with Nick Arnerich by any chance while you were there? Does that at, name sound at, So many people have gone through that restaurant. The, yeah, so many. Yeah. So many. He might um, have been before his time. That maybe. Well, you know what year he was there? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, I think you were before his time. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, on my way out, the French Laundry book came out. So on my drive out there, I have this book. And at the <laughs> time, that book, everyone was like, what the hell? This book is ridiculous. And everything worked in that book. And uh, so a great um, introduction to what I was coming into. So I got out there. Oh, and I, and I had a friend that lived out there. So he put me up while I went through this tryout. And uh, everyone I've talked to, their first day at the French Laundry, you're just like, what the hell is going on here? It's like a surgeon's. I got to take a timeout and clear my throat real quick. It's like uh, an operating room. Yeah. It's so clean and quiet. And uh, you can look around and the only food you see is what people are working on. There's no like things on the shelves. It's, a, it's a, such a tight operation. It's, it's hard to explain unless you've been there. I mean, would you want to run a restaurant like that? Like, no. Okay. No, that's... Uh, See, I think that's something that's worth diving into because yeah. everybody aspires for the Michelin stars, the James Beer, the best of. But at what cost? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, are yeah. you willing to live your life like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think at uh, Hugo's, I worked at that level, but I wasn't looking for this accolades like that. It was just a passion. But... um Seeing it alive and working was just mind-boggling. I got the job. I just got chills up my spine. I, I couldn't bet. believe I was entering uh, that class of a kitchen. So yeah. what were the biggest lessons, aside again, aside from the food, but from how Thomas Keller led his team, from the, the standards of excellence and everything? Can you give me something specific, a, a takeaway from this time? <laughs> Too many. Too many. But What's I would the first say- one that comes to mind? Um, everyone gave a shit big time. 
Like um, if you were doing something, a dishwasher could come over and call you out on it. So everyone was calling everyone out on everything all the time. So Man. there was a level that everyone's trying to maintain. And of course, there's a hierarchy there. But if you're dropping the ball, most multiple people around there to point out what's what's needs to be fixed. So what was it about the culture where the dishwasher could walk up to the sous chef or the line cook and say, that's not right. How did he establish that culture where there was kind of a flat hierarchy? Fear. <laughs> Fear that if it's if it makes it to the past and it isn't to standard, then we're all going to get bent over. Oh, yeah. Everyone gets bent over all the time. It's a uh, it's um, striving for perfection and the love of the striving of perfection is really what defines it. Did you enjoy that level of stress for um, X amount of months? I was I was older, so I took the stress differently, but it was uh, stressful. I mean, because of my age, it was different stresses there. But um, how did how did your age play into a different level of stress? Um, I don't think some of the sous chefs felt so good reaming me out, no. <laughs> <laughs> but they would. But I think yeah. uh, I, I gained some respect with that if if, if it's only a little. But um, I think um, and it's not fear of being yelled at it's fear of being in the way of such a beautiful process mm. is what keeps everyone on their toes no one wants to be that guy mm-hmm. you don't want to be the guy on the on the team dropping the ball fouling were you fumbling. ever that guy always well <laughs> take me to one time where you were that guy um i mean for me that's the only way I learn. It can be a hard way of learning is making yep. mistakes. That's what I loved about owning my own place. Yeah. I could try outrageous things and make mistakes and it would just cost me money and that would be it. <laughs> um, um, gosh. I said one time I forgot to, uh, there was mise en place that I missed on someone's station and uh, Eric Zebo called me out on it. He's asking why. That's the most honest answer I could give him. I forgot. He goes, well, chef, forgot doesn't fly at the French laundry. (laughs) Those are valuable lessons, you know? I think there's also um, a lot of lessons in being honest, like in just saying, I think a younger person would have maybe come up with an excuse, would have been afraid to just say, I effed up, I forgot. Why is it so more valuable to just admit when you made a mistake and to be honest with your mistake? Well, you take you take the ego out of it, and then it just becomes a learning lesson. Mm. Nothing more than that, and that's something we try to strive with our staff all the time. It's information. If you can take the personal out of it, not get your feelings get hurt. Yeah. And if I take that situation, oh, I forgot. What's that mean? It means I should be diving in deeper. I should be more thorough. I should maybe take better notes. Whatever the the lesson may be, that's that's um. Plus, the lessons come from, I don't even like criticism. I like the word correction mm. better than criticism. Okay. And plus, I think the other added benefit of just getting to I made a mistake or I messed up is you get to the solution faster, right? Yes. Why Why get hung up over the, what really happened? Just get to the solution, right? Yes. Um, okay. So you come back to Maine 2000. What brought you back? When did you know it was time to come back to do your own thing? Well, I was... Uh, out there with Nancy, my wife, and she was working two jobs. I was working uh, at the laundry. Were you married at this time out there? No. Okay. Nope. And uh, 
we uh, were barely making ends meet. She was working. She worked at Pinot Blanc and Cuvée Sun uh, Vineyard. I was working the laundry. And uh, we still um, were struggling. And then we were cleaning Taylor's Instant Refresher. Anyone from Napa knows that place very well. It's awesome. Okay. Like window where you can go up and get like ahi tuna burgers and a glass of wine. So we were cleaning dishes there. Not dishes, but uh, the kitchen at night for cash. Okay. So it was grueling. 60 hours a week at the laundry for like 220 bucks a week or something Jeez. I was making. And, uh, and again, I'm 36. She's looking at me like, you know... Okay. What's your plan? <laughs> yeah. And uh, was just trucking forward. And then an inn came open in New Hampshire. And we were naive going, oh, there's this great opportunity. I think we're itching to go back to the um, East Coast. And we went back and we were going to open up this inn and run it. And it never happened. Yeah. Never happened. And then we're here on the East Coast and we knew we were here to stay. So what happened with the inn that didn't happen? Oh, different points of view. He wanted nothing to do with what we wanted to do there. Who's he? Food the, wise. Owner? the owner of it, yeah. So he would have retained ownership and you would have worked beside him? Yes. So when did you know it was time to walk away? First day. How'd you know? Wanted to put microwaves in the rooms. Um, he had no understanding of food or hospitality, but wanted to be part of it. And we could just tell the chemistry uh, wasn't there. So that's a huge lesson right there. You're like, you need to be on the same page. If you're yeah. not on the same page, you're going to be pulling in opposite directions. And I mean, you can grow into it with people, but there's got to be some common starting point. Yeah. You know, cool. Well, great lesson there. So how'd you find yourself up here at, at Hugo? Take me through that, that process of, of finding yourself in that kitchen. Well, um, we were here on the East coast struggling now on the East coast. I had no work. Um, I tried out at the uh, White Barn Inn, Relais Chateau property, because I had clout from the inn and from uh, the laundry, and uh, I got a job there. Never took it because, uh, well, I should back up. I worked Hugo's before it was mine for a season, so I knew the owner. Was this before? Before when I was working at Goose Cove Lodge, gotcha. I did a yes, winters in Maine. Gotcha. And dropped in to see Johnny Robinson, the owner of uh, Hugo's at the time, and uh, says, oh, what are you doing? And told him and was looking for a chef gig and whatnot, do my own thing, getting ready to start at the White Barn Inn. I go away and he tracks me down and says, hey, I've been wanting to sell. So we came back up and sat down to the table and... Uh, started the process of acquiring Hugo's. Take me through that process. Any lessons from this process? How do you guys approach it? Is there anything worth diving into there? Oh, so much. <laughs> First of all, we didn't know what we were doing at all and had zero money. So how'd you navigate that situation? Um, well, I worked there for the summer, working towards buying it so I could get to know the customer and what would work there and and that also gave us time to acquire um, revenue. And uh, we didn't have any. We're literally sleeping in the back of my truck um, and staying at friends' couches and stuff. That sounds like my life right now. <laughs> I'm driving around the I miss that so much. <laughs> so we, uh, long story short, he financed a third of it. Um, we scraped up uh, a third with family. 
And then we uh, we heard these rumors called a character loan. Okay. You don't need any collateral or anything like that. So uh, we ended up uh, going to a couple banks till we found a bank where we could talk to the guy that was actually going to sign the paper and not a whole bunch of yeah. minions along the way. And in the end, he signed off on us. This was going back in 2000. 2000. Times were a little different yeah, back times then. Times totally different. Like uh, Dana Street uh, wrote us a letter of recommendation, a few other owners in town, and uh, we got a loan from this bank. So what was it about you and your situation that you think allowed you to pull it off? Was it the reputation, the the network, the like what was it? I think the food I was doing that summer got attention. The food you're doing at at uh, Hugo's yep. uh, where I had worked um, me and Nancy as a team, I think a lot of people saw a, a dynamic team there between so the two of us. So what was that di- dive into that those dynamics? Um with me and Nancy? Yeah. Um we counter each other really well. We um it was difficult. We we dived into owning a, a restaurant um together and it was all consuming up until when we sold it. So from 2000 to 2012. Right. All well, consuming. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um we had $2000 working capital when we opened. Okay. So nerve-wracking right from yeah, the start. That can go away like instantly. Um, putting pork belly on the menu, and no one knows what it is. They th- we have to call it fresh bacon. We got to call it all these different things. No one's even seen pork belly outside of bacon. So we're taking risks. We have no money to start with. That was something else I was really curious about because you're going from the serving the most – Refined palates that are probably in the states between D.C. and uh, the French Laundry, uh, San Francisco area, correct? Uh, Northern California. Uh, these areas are leading edge at that time, right? Yes. And you're feeding the most refined, educated palates out there. Then you come to Portland, Maine, in the early <laughs> 2000s, which was not quite there yet. Nope. Uh, wouldn't probably be even close till probably when you got here. You're you're a leading edge, but what was it like having to take what you know, knowing what you're capable of doing, and repackaging it to be marketable? To <clears throat> did you know that? Did you have to learn the hard way? Like yeah, how did you approach it? Had that? to learn the hard way. Okay, and that's a good word, repackaging it, because I had to uh, re repackage it in a way that was accessible to the average diner. So were you trying to do things like menus, items that were on like the, the French Laundry and the Little Note Washington at first? And people were like, what's that? Was it just not selling? No, there were my own uh, creations. I think um, portion size was a big problem early on. We were like trying to rip people off. You know, now the small portion, you can't even go out and get a yeah. main course <laughs> anymore, you know? Yeah. So um, a hard sell early on. Uh, empty dining room. Again, we had no working capital, so we're working with the most god-awful tables and decor, and we're not happy about how the place looks. doesn't represent us, so we focus on the food. We focus on the service. We uh, scraped up enough money in a year and a half to renovate the place, which was just felt so good. It finally felt like me and Nancy. Yeah. Let's go deep here. So... $2,000 operating capital day one. Uh, you didn't have much to work with, but you focus on the food and you focus on the service. Take me through 
what that looked like, this transformation, focusing on the food. How did you slowly transform that? We'll start there and talk about service later. Yeah, so I had a... I had to have a good food cost to survive there. So I had to figure out how to um, do the best food I could without killing ourselves. We just didn't have the money. And uh, I developed um, the practice of uh, using everything I could. And then it became liberating. A good simple example, you get a salmon in. If you know you're going to do a crudo out of all the trim, it allows you to cut clean center cuts out of a salmon or other fish, which allows you to give people a really choice cut of fish. And at the same time, you make the money on the back end. And that ended up becoming a kind of signature um, of mine. For instance, cod. I told you earlier, my parents are from uh, Newfoundland. I grew up with cod. Mm -hmm. So I had manipulated cod a thousand different ways there and using everything from the head to the tongue to the throat to everything else there. So that ended up being a style, which also served us well in like food cost. So that style, you're just trying to, sur to survive, but this way of cooking ended up being the status quo of the whole nose to tail, use everything. That's the new standard. Yes. But you initially started cooking like this because you needed to stretch every penny yes. out of that cod uh and you need to get your money back so yes any other lessons there well i couldn't go back after that one thing i did notice go on, back to what go back to um let's uh, jump ahead and i'm successful at hugo's and now i can just like take six choice cuts out of a fish and staff out the rest of it which you saw at the french laundry which you saw at the animal washing there's a huge amount of waste yeah. like at at the uh, French Laundry, if you cut fish, it doesn't. You don't see that the next day. That's being eaten by staff. It's fresh fish all the time. <clears throat> so um, I, I couldn't jump to that. And the, the way I'm talking about with using the whole animal, sure, the the snout to tail thing is a good representation of that. But isn't that how everyone should eat? Yeah, nothing should make it into the uh, into the trash. You know, it's mm -hmm. all valuable. But early on, like this approach of cooking, I mean, your values were there for that. But also you were trying to, again, get every penny out of that. No waste. Stretch it as far as possible. That was your mentality. Yes. Um, what about the service? How did you transform the service there? You said you had a, you focused on service. What was that transformation? Well, that was uh, that was Nancy. I'm still, even in my own plate at restaurant, guilty of just putting my head down and thinking about food. So that's a huge lesson right there yes. is having that person that you knew you were the introvert. You wanted to be in the back, deep into your work, being creative and getting lost in that. You knew you needed that front of house representation. What was it about Nancy that you knew was the right business partner and life partner? Well, if you, uh, if you ever met her, it'd be obvious. I was hoping to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> she's, um, she's just genuine. She's genuine in how she is with everybody. Uh, everybody, um, that comes through the door that comes into her life she's um she's just pure uh pure love pure caring and that penetrated our whole dining room give me something specific a story an example of what level she was willing to go at to to deliver that service and how that generosity that that or the not generosity but genuine side of her came through and shined through get specific um, putting you on the spot here. Our success, <laughs> yeah. 
What do you mean, Nancy? By that? We share that success. I I, I get uh, some of the attention, but it is a shared success between the two of us. And uh, that restaurant wouldn't have made it without her and who she is. People walked into that restaurant and they just felt like they were coming over a relative's house. And that also, maybe this better answers the question, her style, which permeated our staff, was be yourself, be comfortable. There was no canned lines that people were told to do. We let our staff be who they were. And um, so I think her style was representative through all our wait staff, which um, up until we sell, a lot of them stayed with us right to the end yeah. I think because yeah. of that. And we're going to get into the point where uh, eventually you, you mentored these group of fellas and you ended up selling it to them. I want to get to that. But you said from 2000 to 2012, you were just nonstop going, pushing ahead. Was there a darkest moment in this in this 12 years that you can reflect back, the hardest time that you had to get through during this this 12-year stretch? We also have to talk about in 2005, you opened Duckbat too. Yes. Well, uh, you know, the early years, you're so busy just trying to make it. I guess you don't paint it as a dark time, although, you know, it's, it was very difficult uh, back in the day. What um, turned around for us, we often get... Uh, or I get noticed for the James Beard Award. I was also got uh, top 10 chef by Food & Wine in 2004, which doesn't get the traction today with all these TV yeah. shows and stuff, but that was a huge launching point for a lot of chefs, Daniel Balud, Thomas Keller, lots of guys. And um, I had worked with Grant uh, Akis at uh, the French Laundry when he was there. Yep. Then he went to El Bulli. Then he opened up Trio, and I went and staged with Grant at Trio, my third year at Hugo's and blew my mind and a huge influence on uh, probably one of the bigger influence right up there with Patrick O'Connell experience there, but just watching Grant work. And this was a time when El Bully was just getting on the map and he's bringing that style to trio. This is pre Alinea. So I got to see Grant when he was underfunded like myself <laughs> yeah. and he was doing sous vide stuff you know out of a this um, is 2003 out of a walmart cryovac machine <laughs> on a stove with a digital thermometer and stuff so this is 2003 and uh he uh nominated me for the um food and wine he nominated award you. yeah and he called me up to tell me i was like jesus grant thanks i didn't That's know amazing. what to make of it and uh i ended up winning and that started the whole PR train up till today was that particular uh, moment. And now I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to do. So he nominated, what was it? You said he influenced you, but you mean he also, he got, you got the nomination that was huge, but how did he influence you? Oh, he's just genius. I hate that word. It gets thrown around, not in our industry, but all the time. And, uh, well, to back up, he's sous chef at the French laundry at like 23. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So born into it and uh, watching him work and the way he thinks and the way he was packaging his style for a particular client in Chicago that was not exactly savvy yet to what we see today, you know? <clears throat> so, um, yeah, just everything he did was um, 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 made an impact. So you mentioned... Uh, the PR push after. So did you guys get wise in higher pub, uh, public 
uh, relations person, or was that just no? Oral that drinking? award set everything in motion. Okay. From there, how do things change? Well, I could do whatever I wanted to do, okay. and the restaurant was Make filled all the time. You were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I made those earlier. So okay. <laughs> no, I did. I always took risks there, so there was always mistakes uh, along the way. You, you mentioned the challenge for the entire twelve years. How did why did things get easier after the the press really started to come? Did um, well, after that award, I was able to cook whatever I wanted to, and then. Um, 2007 came in the recession. So we were now a high-end restaurant in Maine. And boom, it seemed like the bottom uh, dropped so out. Just when things should be going, boom, yeah. like up, up, because yeah. you're, you're growing, you're getting that, that national yes. press, the economy drops. Oh, from yes. Man. And the first thing people drop is art, high-end eating. Yep. That's Luxuries. why this uh, fast casual thing, I think, yeah. has a good stability to it in this current environment. But... Um, yeah, all of a sudden we were uh, struggling, and that was a dark time. Uh, but even before this, you opened uh, Duck Fat. Well, that added to the dark time. We, yeah. After okay. uh, Food and Wine Award, we're flush with money, and a spot opened up, and we say, oh, let's open up a sandwich shop. And then when we opened up that, a year or two later, recession comes. Now we got two restaurants struggling, and Duck Fat kills it now, but for Four to five years, it was a hard sell. So what was the hard sell early on? Um, The name. <laughs> that, to me, is a draw, personally. <laughs> the name and, like, uh, people were thinking our sandwiches were expensive, and I guess some still do, but it also wasn't a lunch town. Yeah. People weren't going out uh, to eat for lunch back then. So now we had two restaurants during this recession. It was sucking money out of Hugo's just to keep it afloat. And uh, remember, too, through all of this, there's uh, me and Nancy in our relationship. And it's very trying um, on both of us uh, the whole time. Basically, that it consumes everything, your conversations and what you're doing and how to get it going and keep it going. And when you say it going, you talking about the restaurants? Yeah, the, the whole, <laughs> both. Yeah. <laughs> both, yeah. So how did you come out of it? How did you? Um, 2009, James Beard Award. Okay. And then uh, economy started getting better. And uh, I never, food and wine, I never even thought of that. I never thought of awards. I, I just wanted my own restaurant to play with food, basically. And uh, and I remember Grant uh, asking me, so, so what are you doing for PR? I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't need PR. I'm going to win people over plate by plate. And <laughs> I was so naive, you know. <laughs> so the, I saw the press from Food and Wine gave me the license to do what I want. But uh, James Beard, I never th came into the equation. Did it was PR, something I went didn't go after. Did that conversation happen before or after 2009? That was before Food and Wine. Before, so you were just... Yeah. What, do you still believe that that approach of winning people over plate by plate isn't the right way? Do you think you would have been where I you think, are today uh, if you didn't have it? I think in a bigger city with more population, if your food's good, as long as you fill the seats, that's all that matters. You know, mm -hmm. some people like the celebrity aspect of it, which I never took to, but I sure like the seats being filled. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the biggest lesson out of this nine years to the James Beard that you think we can draw on the thing that helped you make it happen that 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 
you know, got you to the point where you didn't lose the restaurant in the early days when you had nothing to your name, the, what got you through the recession? Like, what was it? What was going on? What can we learn from you? Um, I always took risks the whole time, even during that dark time. I would, a, risk could be um, how we format the menu, how we advertise the food itself. Um, I think it's important to take risks in order to get to where you want to be. And for instance, during that dark time, me and Nancy went through many discussions like, oh, we should have a burger on the menu. Or we should have this on the menu. And then I counter it. I'm like, no way am I putting that on the menu <laughs> or whatever we're talking about. So, um, and then that was part of our success, though, that particular dialogue there. Because I could get too risky and she would reel me in. Yes. And then it could go the other way. So there's that dynamic between us that helped keep the place alive. So part of the, the secret to the bouncing the risk is having somebody on your team that will give you a reality check. That will, And I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm the dreamer. I'm the one that says, look what's possible. Look what we can do. I, and I'm trying to currently surround myself with the people that are like, okay, that's a great idea. But like, here's how we do it. Like here, like this is what it's going to take, and this is what will happen. Like maybe find a middle ground. Like, yeah, you yeah. Know? right, right. It's hard to find that on your own sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, a learned skill. Mm-hmm. Usually, comes with a lot of suffering along the way to find that. What was the best risk you ever took? Um, Hugo's. Yeah. In general, <laughs> right? Back but, in a time where no one was even thinking like that. It was very risky back in the day, and uh, so uh, easy to not see it now. Yeah, like what's going on uh, everywhere. Never mind just Portland, but um, all of Hugo's was a huge risk. When was give me a time that taking a big risk bit you in the ass the hardest? Um, <laughs> I don't think it ever did. It always really? served me. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's small. Do you think it's your mentality that makes you think that it has always served you? Are you, are you an optimist by nature? I think so. I think um, I need to curb my enthusiasm a lot. It can uh, get me into trouble, hence the unstoppable chef. Yeah, right. Um, so I think one thing that we definitely need to dive into um, – because of the the backstory, we had Arlen Smith on the show. He kind of shared the story of how he came here, the the experience he had in the restaurant, one of the best experiences of his life, which really just was sucked him in. Coming on board, he was friend of us. He partners with uh, Andrew and yeah. Michael, right? Yes. Um, take us through, I think that lesson right there, you build this reputation. You build, you didn't build Hugo from scratch. You took over, but you built it into what it, it, its fullest potential, right? Um, and you, you spent 10 years of your life, 12 years of your life building up this thing and then you sell it, uh, you get rid of it. What was going through your mind? Why was that the right call? Um, well, I don't like the word getting rid of it. Sorry. (laughs) I, um, wanted it to continue, but there's many factors into it. Um, the unstoppable chef factor. What is the unstoppable, unstoppable chef, chef is throwing it all to the wind and letting your relationship suffer, your health suffer. Um, too much of one thing. I mean, I would be thinking about food 24-7 um, in the kitchen from 9 in the morning till 1 at night all the time. And uh, 
It wasn't until uh, I ended up herniating a disc in 2007, which put me like at one point in a wheelchair, but took me out of the game for like six months that I started reevaluating. What did you learn? What was that important? Time? That reevaluation. Um, what did you come to? One that I probably can't work at that level anymore. At this point, you're 42. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Very good. And um, that I can't work at that level anymore. But um, how am I going to make it work? And then the obvious, it's what everyone does, is you. Uh, Learn to work through Both those your two guys worked for me for four years at Hugo's, by the way. Oh, They're really? with me now. Yeah, it was uh, there, Mike Smith people coming and uh, Scott in and Nichols. Of the, yeah. the office right now. Um, and, um, yeah, that I couldn't work at that level. So when uh, I healed from that, um, I started looking for a chef de cuisine. Fired the first one in like six months. Just the ego. After, the, yeah, yeah. After you had come back like, and you healed? Handing something precious over to someone and just having them be willy-nilly with it or something. It yeah. was difficult for me. So it, I'm, I love that we're going here right now. I just started reading a book uh, called Finish Big, and it's, this, it's, it's a book that teaches people how to create a business to eventually sell someday. And mm-hmm. a lot of the things that restaurant owners or business owners in general have to think about to one day sell. And one of the biggest questions is who gets it? Who's right. going to take what I've created and treat it with the same love and compassion right. in everything that I've given it? Like you don't want it's, – it's a child almost. Yes. Like you've built this exactly. thing. You've exactly. Formed. Like, so how did you set those standards? How did you know exactly what you w- were willing or not willing to sacrifice? Well, once uh, I hired a second chef to cuisine and I could just tell I didn't want to be that guy. What I guy? Did, the babysitting. Okay. The uh, – Chef that steps in, steps out, not engaged in the whole process like I was, and uh, other things I wanted to do in life. More time on my motorcycle, more time outside. <laughs> it's a big one. And um, what's next? So you started just reevaluating. Reevaluating everything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's uh, in conjunction with Nancy as well. And then when we decided to sell, we uh, put it on the market. We got it evaluated. And um, and Andrew Taylor started working for us in 2010 after the James uh, Beard stuff. So he missed all the, the suffering that happened all the <laughs> way up to James Beard. And um, Andrew was the first uh, guy I'd called in to run the kitchen that I felt connected with and felt safe leaving it in his hands. What, what was it about Andrew that resonated? Well, he with was you? cutting his teeth as a chef. It was his first gig, and you could tell uh, he was hungry for it. And uh, I let him do whatever he wanted, which was difficult. Um, you know, I had my own style there, and uh, I'm not one that can control someone else's creativity. I want them to run with that, you know. So I let him do what he wanted to there for the most part, and he did a really good job. And as we're talking, as we're working together, um, I told him we were selling. Well, we had an announcement to our whole staff. We got a meeting and said, oh, we're putting it on the market and we're selling. And uh, I would keep checking in with Andrew. I'm like, Andrew, you're the guy. I'm telling you. You're the guy. And he'd, he'd bail and he'd bail. And 
Then two years later. So exactly what was it that made him the guy? What were the attributes, the key attributes? Aside from it's his first gig, gig he's driven. What was it about him that was right <laughs> in your gut that you knew he was the right person? Well, he's job? married. He has a wife. He has a house. And I know he won't be able to cook anywhere else after there. <laughs> okay. I knew uh, I had him. And... um I could not see him working for anyone else. He seemed like he was uh, ready mm-hmm. to do that. So uh, eventually he says, oh, I'm in. Okay. And uh, he's well-funded and had a lot of support and was able to make it happen pretty quick. But he didn't do it by himself. He also brought in the other, was it the sous chef or the other executives? Yeah, and that was chefs? Andrew. That wasn't a sell to those guys. I sold okay. it to Andrew. And Andrew acquired those two guys, who also was working for me uh, mm-hmm. at the time, and took them on as uh, partners. What, I think I think that scenario is best case scenario. You build something up. You have a few guys working for you, learning from you, and you get to pass the baton uh, to people that you've mentored and that you've instilled some core values in, some uh, of the same standards, right? What was that feeling like to know that you were handing it off to the right people? And how did you just do that? What did that process look like? It must um, be an easy transition because they had already been in the business. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, they, they ran with it. You know, of course, uh, they opened up, uh, Eventide right at the same time. And that was an Andrew concept and it's immensely successful. Yeah. So, um, the two, I think supported each other and, and then they were off and running, you know, they have really hit the iron when it was hot and, Seemed to be well funded as well, and they were able to run with it full bore. Yeah, and I don't know if there's have, if there's ever been another scenario in James Beard history where an executive chef owner wins the best chef award, and three years later the successors come and win the same award. <laughs> Has that ever happened before? I mean, I don't know. I don't keep track. It's of almost that like sort a, of stuff. I don't really either, but I feel like that scenario is just what you could you couldn't wish for anything better. Right. Right. Um, so we got to dial back. We got to talk about why you thought uh, the, the focusing. I mean, you could have gotten rid of either one of these restaurants. Why did you when I say either one? I'm talking about not get rid of. That's the word you don't like. Sorry. <laughs> oh, what's the word I'm supposed to be using again? Oh, I don't know. Passing off. Continued, continuing. Uh, yeah. Offer, you yes. chose to go with duck fat. What was it about duck fat that made you think that this is the right choice? Why is this the right path? Um, I didn't obsess over it. Okay. Like uh, Hugo's. It seemed like a healthier lifestyle. And it was. So we sold Hugo's. We bought 82 acres in western Maine. And we live out there half the week. And we commute into town for the other half. So you weren't obsessed about it. I'm going to make that mental note. But I'm also really curious about how did you come... What advice do you have for somebody who's selling a business that's a successful business? I feel like most people don't walk away from what you built. You know? they That's their... They their their retirement plan is die right yeah. like you know like do it as long as I can but you you had an exit strategy yeah. and a lot of people say that but uh, you know like, like now you you go to the French Laundry right sure you'll get oysters and pearls and the classics he has there but really what you're getting is what's trendy and what's hip that all his sous chefs are interpreting mm. Thomas Keller's imprint on that restaurant and the food. Is much different from when he was in it. So, but you know, there's some joy with that. You get to encourage these young guys and stuff. But I felt uh, job well done. 
time time for something complete uh, mission different. complete did it Wh- yeah and you know my advice for someone doing that is to just the same reason i got into it is don't sell it because you want the income you sell it because it's putting you in a place that's you're passionate about and things you want to do and my health has increased after selling hugo's my relationships are better I'm a much more balanced human being in general than when I was uh, there. What advice do you have for somebody who may be doing really well and they've built up a successful business, but they're they're just not really in it anymore like they used to be and they want to redirect their focus to maybe a little more life uh, work or work-life balance? What things, what advice do you have for selling a business correctly? Like anything we need to consider, any uh, things Again, that you didn't consider? Go that- after what you love. What about the actual like nuts and bolts of selling the business? Do you have any suggestions, things to make sure you put on a checklist when you are selling the, biz- the um, business to protect yourself? Get ready for it to uh, not be what you think it is anymore. It's going to be taken in a different direction. You know, If you yeah. cling to that, that could be uh, painful. I have a friend in uh, Arizona who owned five restaurants and hated himself for it, hated it, and sold, all, sold them all and downsized into a 15-seat restaurant so he could be cooking again. There's mm. a great example. I'll give you his name later. I think you'd yeah. really enjoy talking to him. Yeah. But um, he, cons- he just unloaded everything. He was at a point where he's like, I just hate cooking now. I'm going to open up a sloppy joe cart, and that's all I'm going to do. <laughs> I always thought that was a funny uh, phrase. But, um, and he liquidated everything mm-hmm. and opened up a 15-seat tasting one seating venue in Phoenix, Arizona, and he's doing what he loves now. Yeah. It was, is it Sloppy Joe's? No. Okay. <laughs> no. No, Binkley's. Okay. Binkley's. Okay. Yeah. So talking more like business-minded things, like you go back to Duck Fat, some of the variables I can point at and are, are pretty clear is that it's a less – it's not as a uh, – what's the word? It's more fixed, right? Uh, the the things you do, there's more standards there. Where with Hugo's, you're constantly creating your it, it, so many moving parts every the, day. The skill level that you needed yes. from your it, it's a it's a beast. Whereas Duck Fat is you have well, what's the brand? What's the concept of Duck Fat? I'll let you explain. Um, well, the word Duck Fat comes from uh, our signature. There is fries, fried and duck uh, and duck fat. Yep. So. Um, from there, it's kind of different where usually your hamburger or your sandwich is the center of the plate. We've chosen French fries to be the star there, all inspired from trips to Amsterdam. And um, so it is a luncheon place first. Smaller menu. Smaller menu, yep. sandwiches. Fixed menu. Everything done from scratch. In the beginning, I was like, oh, how come people don't make their own sandwich fillings? And now I know. It's <laughs> a lot of work. Shit ton of work yeah. for 12 bucks a sandwich. But we make all the meats there, all the charcuterie. Everything there is still made from scratch. And we'll do 800 people a day there in the summer. So to do all that from scratch is is a beast. So it needs to be consistent and not changing so you i can actually mess things up by going in there and changing stuff yeah. i can throw huge monkey wrenches in there all the time by uh going in and on a flu going oh i want to change this you know now we have this like four-day process to changes and everything else so that you wanted to create something that you could put the the time in to 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 
to set everything, right? Like these are like do your sandwiches change often? Like you have your staples, right? Or do you have yes. specials? Well, we have staples that our customers will not let us yep. stray from, but we do have specials. How many sandwiches are there total on the menu? We have eight, eight, nine. and how many of those are never changing? Now, probably six or seven of them. So how you might have two, one or two or three There's specials. There's two on there that change seasonally and then we have special. So you have to teach people how to do, I mean, there's all the, the dressings and the, the scratch condiments that you create, but really you, you teach them how to do it. They get to that standard that you fix, right? And then it's just a matter of making sure they're maintaining the standard. You're not having to bring crazy creative things into the mix and that's just much more manageable. Yes. yes. It's also a great uh, training ground for young cooks, how okay. to consistently do the same thing over and over again, which inevitably is what you end up doing, even at Hugo's. How okay. do you consistently do a quality product that's sized appropriately, seasoned the same way? So, And that became an interesting uh, exercise for myself, was training these young cooks that I was used to being in the kitchen with. Now I'm outside looking in. And how to make stuff happen. And then when we sold Hugo's, duck fat was just, you know, 100% growth every year. It was outrageously successful around that time. <clears throat> so um, it was challenging on how to um, keep that uh, consistency. What do, you, what do you attribute the success to? What was it about duck fat that you think really just hit a vein with the, the market? Well, the name... There's an honesty to it, and you can't forget it. Yes. Uh, to, to compound <laughs> off that, this, the, like you mentioned earlier, the French fries are the centerpiece, yeah. and it's a unique selling proposition. It's something that separates you from every other restaurant. Yes. In, from what I know of in probably the States, who right. else was frying French fries and duck fat at that time? Regularly. Um, well, you know, French restaurants would do it. We definitely didn't come across that. That was something I would do at Hugo's, yeah. frying potatoes and duck fat but, and stuff. So it was a fat we chose. Yeah, you did the one yeah, thing yeah. that was very unique, a unique selling proposition that separated you from everybody else. Um, yes. What else was there? Um, well, also, at, in, in this country, the three main foods are pizza, hamburgers, and french fries. So you knew people were going to like it. Name <laughs> one french fry franchise you know of. You can name 100 pizza places, 100 burger places. French fries are not the star. So I think uh, we chose something that let's admit everyone likes. If you don't like a fried potato, it's like, what, what is wrong? Dude, with I'm you? an eyeball on so. those French fries, but I had one that was super crunchy and I've been afraid to go back ever since. I'm going right. to destroy those things at the end of this interview. So it's, it's much work that goes into those. And there's a lot of detail that goes into that simple thing of fries. Ultimately, everyone likes fries myself, uh, a poorly fried potato. I enjoy <laughs> so put I a little bit of time and energy into crack. doing it properly. And people are just like, what are you sprinkling on here? Crack? Right. Yes. But I think the other thing is too. So your, your unique selling proposition is also something that you're able to do better than everybody else. So it's kind of the same, but we're one in the same, but there's a lesson that comes up often on the, on the show, which is if you can't be the best at it, then don't do it. Right. Be, so you focus on one thing. You're, we're going to fry it in duck fat and we're going to put an, an extreme amount of detail with the, the sauces and mm -hmm. everything. So you, was that part of your plan to, to do one thing better than everybody else? No, I think that's just what we brought to it. 
and that's a it's a good point you bring up now there's this fast casual movement which is pretty exciting i think eventide represents that mm-hmm. as well is that um that's a true american emerging concept in my opinion yeah this like not fast food like this fast casual but then you can go out and really simple means get food that 10 years ago would have cost you a fortune in a fine dining restaurant you know so it's um it's people uh bringing that quality to the simplest of foods like this whole craft movement we're seeing craft beer craft burgers craft this you could call that craft fries Mm -hmm. even tied craft uh lobster roll now you go over to europe and you say craft and like what are you talking about this is what we've been doing for centuries <laughs> yeah, exactly you know? so it's a it's a term that shows this emerging of us caring about food and people um putting more thought and energy into food so at duck fat i outside of the constantly evolving menu we brought that that level to it yeah and i think it served us in the well in so the end. One other thing we, we mentioned uh, during the pre-interview chat was that you are have been just flooded with this uh, like almost like cult following of people that come to Portland and like we gotta go get some duck fat fries, yeah. and you have had to work and navigate around how to handle that the influx of people because you have a small space. Yes. So take us through your your thought process and how you've adapted to this influx this this wave of people that just you can only serve so many at a time. You bottleneck. Right. So how are you dealing with that? What are your things? What um, solutions did you create for that? There's two things. One's a technology and one's a management style. And the technology that helped us was um, handheld uh, POS systems. And there wasn't a lot around. We saw them in Europe when we were traveling there. And we, were, uh, and we started it at uh, Duck Fat. That changed everything. It kept our staff on the floor. It made our staff more relaxed. It makes the customer that's been waiting an hour and a half more relaxed because you, you give your server your order and you're like, Oh, my order just went in. Yeah. Okay. I don't know about you, but if I'm hungry and I gave my order and the waitress walks off with it, I am watching her going, come on. Yep. Put that order in. Exactly. So that was a huge uh, help in just the level of service, the level of attention. And it also shaved 10 to 15 minutes off of people's time. Mm-hmm. It also kept uh, wait staff out of the kitchen. Yep. So that was a huge piece. So you had more face time and it, it yes. made the process faster and it saved time. Yes. I mean, but basically the same thing there. But all right. Anything we haven't discussed up to this time? I mean, your, well, your latest project, obviously. Do you want to talk about that? What were you about to say? Well, the, the second piece, there was the technology piece, was the management piece. And uh, a friend of mine's father, it's one of the founders of Cape Cod uh, of... Um, Gestalt management um, down in um, Cape Cod. And it's kind of big corporate management training, but um, the Cape Cod model that was developed in Wellfleet, we're good friends uh, with uh, Joe's son, Spencer. And we started this level of management with um, Spencer five years ago. And it, and it changed how we manage our staff, how we motivate people. Um, it's created a culture there. So through that um, style of management, that would be the second biggest thing. I what think. was this, the name of the style of management? Uh, gestalt. Gestalt management. What is gestalt management? It's, it's hard to describe in one word. It's a, it's a method of therapy. It's applied uh, to corporations, and it's how to, um, it's how to let everyone be heard 
have everyone have value and create a culture where it's safe to be yourself. Everyone brings something to it. No one's less or more than one another. And that sounds uh, kind of hippy-dippy at face value, but it takes a long time to establish that. And once it, once it takes, there's a family that's created. We've got probably eight people at Duck Fat that's been with us over seven years. And um, it's enabled us to um, create a, a style of business that we feel safe walking away from when we need to stepping in when we need to and it's an ongoing process like we'll never so it's a much more difficult way of managing but the impact is much more deeper yes and it's about relationships and you said it it, how like what can you paint the picture of what the structure looks like and how how you built it to the point where that it reached the tipping point and then it's on its own now like what exactly is happening i think um it's a good question um when I say everyone has value, that means um, on so many different levels. What is their strengths? Working with their strengths. Working around their weaknesses when possible. Um, checking in with people is a big one. How often do you check in? Um, well, we check in with our managers a lot. And then we work with our managers to check in with their people. And there's a, uh, there's a level of uh, hierarchy that is maintained within that. So our managers ideally are doing what we're doing with them. And then it trickles down. And a lot of times in the restaurant business, your managers are just line cooks that were our motivated individuals. So how do you teach them um, management skills? So the check-in is as simple as um, at the end of the night, awesome job guys, or maybe someone who's normally weak, you go to that person and say, hey, nice job tonight. So you, you create a dialogue that is a reflection more than a criticism. Now, because you're always checking in, you can say, hey, tonight you're a little slow in this direction. And, you know, you could use a little work here. Now it's not an attack. So you don't wait to talk to these people when you when something only when something bad happens, right? You make it a point to communicate <laughs> yes. consistently good and bad and then people aren't afraid of, when they see you coming exactly. around the corner, they're like, Oh God, brace for impact. Right. Got you. No, that's that's great. Yes, that's the goal. Okay. But still though. Is it more complex? I mean, when I don't it goes, know. <laughs> when it goes so far that we gotta sit someone down and like reel them in because they've spun. Yeah. The biggest thing we'll say to our uh, staff was, you know, why didn't you check in with these people earlier? Their response could be, why didn't we check in with them earlier? So every uh, there's an accountability to it within our managers. But it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the uh, the French Laundry. If if you're called out and you look at it as a correction and not a criticism. You see the value in the mm-hmm. lesson, and you it's, just move I think on. That's also the importance of having the standard and letting the standard be known, because everybody can agree that this isn't that, and then you're just guiding back to what we all agreed upon and creating that standard, right? Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's like you said, it's it's self, it's course correction, right? Right. Bringing right. it back to center line. Yes, bringing it back to center line, and it's um, it's difficult in our environment working with Spencer right away, you know, corporate. Um, 
management is a lot slower process than ours. You know, we're in the frying pan all the time. So how do you reel people in in the middle of service when they're straying in a different direction? Yeah. How do you motivate? You know, so in the end, it's uh, everyone gets recognition for yeah. both their strengths and weaknesses. Rob, I've loved this conversation. I can't believe it's almost been an hour and a half of recording time. It wow. goes by so fast, okay. and I wanted to make sure we got to current time. Is there anything we did not talk about, anything that you were hoping you would bring to the table? Get it out on the table now before we go to the speed round. Um, well, we're at the new location. Yeah. So this was a uh, more risk. Mm-hmm. I throw myself at more risk <laughs> yeah. at my age. But it was more than that. Duck Fat needed help, so we needed a space, a production space. Um, duck fat also is so small that I could not be in there cooking, even if I wanted to be the base, the, in the basement, the ceilings are like six yep. feet and I'm six, four. So coupled with spinal stuff, I could not really Absolutely. partake there. So here at this production facility at the Oxbow Bottling Brewery, we're doing production for duck fat, which puts me in, back into the position of R and D for duck fat, which helps us uh, start elevating what we do there. Uh, we also opened up a fry window, yep. a little nod back to me yep. and Nancy's original idea. Um, and Oxbow and what Tim and his team does for beer, we're just huge fans of it. I think um, they do a stellar product that deserves good food. So we're we're hoping to be doing beer dinners with these guys. We pair lots of uh, food with Tim's beer. So we're happy with who our neighbor is. We share a beer garden between us. And which is something else we talked about earlier today. Uh, when you have talent, like, all around you, surrounded by it. Nancy. Oh, Nancy just walked by the window. <laughs> Nancy sighting. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when you're surrounded by this incredible talent, don't think of that as competition. Think of that as potential for collaboration. Like, yes. you do incredible beer. We do incredible right. fries. And you're sandwiched between another past guest, uh, Coffee by Design. Yes. You know, and was this strategic? Are you looking to collaborate? Was that all part of the plan? Uh, it- collab- the collaboration is fun. For instance, next week we get four Oxbow pigs that they raise on their spent grains. What? We take the pigs, and now we'll be making food to be served with your beer here at the beer garden. That's awesome. So that's, uh, that's how much more line. collaboration. That, yeah. You get that's a, that. and yeah. that's a, that's a storyline that you get to share that story and make yeah. it more than just a sandwich, but you, it, it's, you're experiencing the story, right? Yes. The, the, the story is ending like, at your mouth. Great story there. Which yeah. We haven't even begun to talk about yet. Oh man. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk about that now? Or are you talking about the other? That's the story. <laughs> Our collaboration with Oxbow. Yeah. And there's so much uh, potential uh, to do. Many different things here. Like uh, next week, I'm doing a friends and family beer dinner in the kitchen in the style of what I did at Hugo's, which is very exciting. I get to get that out of my system. Man, randomly, I'll do that. Now I have an Argentine grill outside in the beer garden. We're doing a whole lamb for a buddy's uh, um, staff party on Saturday. Sometimes we'll just release a beer and we'll do a specific sausage to pair with that beer. So it's this project here is as diverse as I want it to be. I love it. Yeah. I love it, man. Um, one last question. We'll go to this be round. How have you transformed? Uh, looking back to who you were when you opened Hugo's to who you are today, how have you transformed and, and how are you better now than when you were then? Uh, um, socially different. I would run to the kitchen all the time. 
Um, I still want to go there, but I don't run there anymore. I can only imagine what it was like <laughs> when somebody said, hey, Eric, this guy, Eric Cacciatore, wants to come and put you in front of a mic for an hour. You're doing great, Which, by the is way. that your real last name? It is. You were meant to do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, you're doing great, man, and I appreciate you taking the time to get side, uh, to, to do the things that, that, that you're the, – the being the face, right? And I appreciate yeah. you taking the time to share your knowledge, yeah, to share your story. Yeah, a lot of fun. You've been great. Um, there's nothing else you want to drop on us. We'll go to the speed round. I don't think so. That was a lot. Yeah, man. I think I've exceeded my allotted <laughs> yeah. time. You definitely have. We're going to crush out a fast <laughs> speed round so Nancy doesn't get too mad at us. And uh, yeah, we'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with cashflowtool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. Cashflowtool.com is simple, powerful, and predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and it works on any device, anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and Enter promotional code UNSTOPPABLE at checkout, and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry, with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based RestaurantEthics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to EthicsSuites.com restaurant unstoppable and you'll get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there we're back and we're gonna make this a true speed round the first question i have for you chef rob is what is your biggest it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success um overly enthusiastic what is your biggest weakness I'm caring too much what people think. Okay. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're growing that team? Um, have you played uh, organized sports? What are you looking for? Someone who understands teamwork. What is your biggest challenge today or this week or this month currently? Um, trying to get this new project on uh, autopilot. What's the biggest challenge in that project? Um, Finding the uh, company's voice right now. Okay, so how are you going to bring it to autopilot? What's the thing that's holding you back from getting there? Um, 
I think it was just uh, I'm getting over the startup stage. Now I'm going into winter, so I have a whole winter to evaluate what the summer was. I'm feeling very optimistic about it, though. Awesome. Uh, what is one uncommon standard or service you teach your team? A way to be uh, that's common within your four walls or a way to serve that's common within your four walls but not common within the industry? Um, maybe that goes back to your first uh, question, uh, the golden rule. Mm. Just treat each other how you'd want to be treated. It's such a simple thing, and it sounds so lame, but so it's like it's it's funny. Like the more I do this podcast, the the biggest lessons I learn are the lessons that we are taught when we're As five kids. years old. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Um, don't belittle anyone. Mm, I love it. What is one book that's a must-read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Oh, um, self-observation, Red Hawk. Is that the author, Red Hawk? Yes. Beautiful. What's the biggest lesson from that book? Um, unbiased judgment of self. Mm. If there was one tool or resource you wish you had now or wish you had when you were getting started to learn from others in the industry, what would it be? Repeat that again. It's a hard question. I didn't like, I'm still trying to figure out how to ask this question. If there's one, I'll just ask it differently. If there is one tool or resource you wish you had now or wish you had when you get started, what would it be? Money. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is uh, one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or do often enough? Take risks. Love it. And what is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that has had a huge impact on operations, profitability, efficiency, communication. I think we already talked about yes, the technology. That would be the handheld POS at DuckFat. Can, what, what's the? Do you know the company? Is it? Uh, it's Micros, but now you can get them through many different carriers. So, so you're still using Micros at the moment. Okay. Are you yeah. looking at other places? Yes. Which ones are you looking at? Um, I can't. We've looked at so many. We're just we're ready to move on and try out a different one now that they're more common. Okay. Um. Here's the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true about your success and for the good of humanity that you could just leave behind. What would those three things be? Um, back to the golden rule. Treat everyone the way you it. want to be treated. Um, don't be afraid. Take risks. I, was, I knew that was going to be one. Yeah. <laughs> And um, appreciate the moment. I love it, man. Rob Evans, this has been a great conversation. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who do you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Oh, Kevin Binkley. Kevin Binkley down in Phoenix, who was a sous chef at the Inlet of Washington. Okay. When uh, I was there. And I've maintained a friendship with him. And he was the guy I was telling you, Opened up a bistro, opened up a bakery, and just was hating life. Too many things going on. He just wanted to cook. He uh, liquidated everything, bought a small house in Phoenix. Now he has a 15-seat restaurant with a kitchen crew of five, and he's cooking every day the way he wanted to cook. Beautiful. A true example of someone who flipped his situation on his head, on its head. Kevin, look out! I'm coming after you. You also mentioned somebody in Austin too. I'm headed out that not way, Austin, so. but uh, Dallas. Close enough to Austin. Dallas, I'll be there. Andrew Savoy, and uh, resident Taqueria, 
Now, Andrew worked with me at the uh, in Little Washington. Then he went out to work for Bouchon. He worked with me at Hugo's. Ended up teaching because he wanted to take care of his kids and spend time and decided to open up a taqueria <laughs> in his, I think, young 40s now and realized what I realized. Why don't people make their own sandwich meats? Because you can only charge $12 a piece. Well, he is making everything from scratch Man. at this place, the tacos, the meat, and everything else. And it is uh, one of the best places in Texas to get tacos. Kevin, Andrew, look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And lastly, how can we connect? What's the best way to follow your work? Maybe come join your team, uh, social handles, anything like that. Drop them on us. Um, well, Instagram here at uh, Duck Fat for Check. I personally add to that. And uh, that's new for me, too. Okay. Not so social media savvy, yep. but I found I had to do it here. <laughs> And, you know, our uh, our website. Yeah. Beautiful. I'll have those in the show notes. Again, Chef Rob Evans, thank you so much for taking the time to to go over our agreed upon time, to, yes. to hang out, to get the whole story. Uh, we're all better after listening to you. And there is no question, my friend. You are unstoppable. What a great episode from an accomplished chef and an incredible restaurateur. Again, Chef Rob Evans, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your knowledge and your your story. We're all so much better after listening to you. I think the big takeaways for me in today's conversation, the first and foremost early on in his career, just staying mobile and staying curious and surrounding yourself with the best. Maybe I sound like a a broken record, but it's so important. And when you keep your liabilities low and you don't have a lot of things tying you down, I'm talking about rent. I'm talking about, uh, I don't know, even a girlfriend, wife and children or husband and children. When you keep your liabilities low, you free yourself up to get out there, to travel, to learn, to experience, to get clarity on what resonates most with you. And when you have that clarity and you know exactly what it is you're going for, exactly what it is you want, it makes opening a restaurant that much easier because you can be that much more intentional about everything you do. And then not to mention the influence that you have, the the perspective you have from surrounding yourself with these incredible people. I mean, look what he was able to have access to these minds. He was in these restaurants like, at his time at little in at or the inn at little Washington, uh, he got the chef to, to coach him every night to critique, to fine tune. That's invaluable. Uh, so important just to, to keep that, that flexibility early in your career to, to get out there, to try different kitchens, to get that experience will serve you so well. And then also what I really loved about today's conversation, uh, really Ask yourself, are you willing? Uh, Certain types of restaurants uh, can be extremely taxing on you. And the the type of restaurants that, like the the, the French laundries of the world, the little ins of the the inn at little, I'm struggling with that. The inn at little Washington, I think I'm saying that right. The little inn at Washington, I'm not sure. Uh, But these types of restaurants, honestly, they. They take so much out of you. You need such a high level of skill and creativity to operate day in, day at that level. Uh, And it really ask yourself, am I willing? Because if you're not willing, you're going to regret it and you're going to be resentful. And if anything happens to you and the business is dependent on your 
your talent, your creativity, you're going to be screwed. So I totally understand why he got away from that business model, the Hugo's business model, and went to something that was more consistent, something that you can you can create at one time and you become the best at doing one thing and you get you get known for that one thing and you can you can train people to, to do this one thing and you can create systems and processes and make the, the business dependent on those things instead of your your creativity, your ability to come up with something new and outstanding time and time again. Uh, such a smarter way of doing business. Uh, I think there's a huge lesson to, the, to hone into there. So ask yourself these questions before you open your restaurant. Am I willing to show up every day for as long as I need to? And if you're not, there's no shame in that. Awesome stuff today, guys. Like always, please do reach out to me, Eric at RestaurantUnstoppable.com. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. Uh, Also, the best way to support this podcast is by sharing it. So if you know of anybody aspiring to be great in this industry, put this sucker on their radar. You are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And at Restaurant Unstoppable, you can surround yourself with the best. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.